0: Our scripture reading today comes from Genesis 16, verses 11 through 13. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, uh, one of our favorite family games around dinner uh, time right now is answering the question, if you could have any superpower which one would you have? It's actually a fun little thought experiment, right? What power would I want if I could have anything? Now, inevitably, my kids will, will land on the, the power to have candy whenever they want uh, and to stay up uh, as late as they want every single night. But eventually, we get to the classics, right? We get to the, you know, I want the power to fly, to move things with my mind, Uh, to run really fast or to be really strong and those are fun and sometimes we even get profound right we get to powers that when you actually think about them no no one would ever actually want like the like the power to read minds like I don't actually want to know what you're thinking about me at at any given moment Uh, or the power to control people right that if you could do that would make life boring and terrible and predictable be invisible and when you really meditate on that one, you, you realize that's actually all of our worst nightmare. You live long enough, and you'll realize that even just the feeling of being invisible is one of the worst feelings you can have. The feeling that nobody sees me, no one understands me, and no one cares about me. I, I cannot think of a more terrifying reality than to be unseen. And as a pastor, a big part of my job understandably, is, is, is meeting with people and listening to them and processing life with them, hearing their pain and their struggles. And you guys, most people don't use these words, but what I often hear in those most painful conversations is something like, I feel invisible. Like if I disappeared tomorrow, nobody would notice. And it, it doesn't seem to matter how old or young you are. I hear this uh, from children who feel left out, uh, from teenagers who feel anonymous, from young adults who are graduating from high school or are coming back from college and feel that they don't fit in anymore, I hear this from everybody. Do I matter anymore? I'm the old man. I'm the old woman in my workplace. Does my opinion matter? Am I just being ignored? Are people just waiting around for me to go away? And behind so many of these conversations and comments and prayer requests, I get the feeling that this fear is lurking. Am I invisible? Does anybody really see me? Because we all want to be seen by others. And by that, I don't just mean be around people, to be tolerated by people, but to be seen, to be noticed, to be known. Someone who feels our pain and delights and our little victories in life and comforts us in our grief and our fear and anxiety. Somebody who sees us for who we really are. And I know that as wonderful as this time of year can be, this this can be a very unseen time. There are lots of people around, perhaps, family and friends, but you might feel more invisible than ever. That's true. And this morning in our in our story from Genesis, we, we read just a little bit of it. It's giving us a window into the life of one of the most invisible people. She had nothing. No family, no identity. She was overlooked and uncared for until God met her. And she gave him a name. We've been in an Advent series as we approach Christmas looking to the scriptures to see what are the names of God revealed to us there. This overlooked woman is actually the only person in the whole Bible to name God. And this name speaks powerfully still about who we are and who God is. So if you brought your Bible, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 16. And I want us to walk through this story together. I'm going to warn you, it's not an easy story. But it's a necessary and good one. So it starts like this. This is verse 1 of this story, Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now if you're not familiar... Uh, Abram and Sarai are later renamed in Genesis, Abraham and Sarah. You might know them by that name. They are the married couple in the book of Genesis whom God calls to eventually become the whole nation of Israel. From this family, the whole nation of Israel will descend. And he's promised Abraham and Sarah a son. Okay, that's back in chapter 15. Abraham was 86 years old when that promise was made, and Sarah is right up there with him. And they've been waiting and waiting and waiting for God to make good on that promise. And our story starts off with a reminder that Sarah has borne Abraham no children. So stop and think about that with me for just a moment, to put yourself in Sarah's life, because it was very, very difficult to be a woman in the ancient world. Most cultures at this time in Mesopotamia, which is the general region where this is happening, treated women as second-class citizens at best. And even then, only certain women were treated even that well. And husbands and men in general had incredible power over women and their lives. So speaking of invisibility, to be a woman in the ancient world was already to trend toward the invisible. And societally, the expectation... And the purpose of womanhood at this time is to build family. This is the reason for existence. I know that sounds dramatic, but I do not think I'm overstating the case. Your value and your identity as a woman was directly tied up in your ability to secure a husband who would take care of you and provide for you and then produce a family, in particular an heir. Think about that. Now go back to this verse. Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. Okay, now, how does that read now? Where you can feel her fear, her anxiety, her desperation growing. This this verse is letting you know that this is an incredibly vulnerable and emotional place for Sarah. And think about this. Not only does she feel society's expectations, her own expectations weighing down on her. But God has promised Abraham a son, and presumably a son through her, his wife. And for whatever reason, God is not letting this happen. And later, Sarah will say explicitly in this story, it is the Lord who's prevented me from bearing children. Infertility is painful enough, and I know so many of you in this room, you don't need me to tell you that. You've been through that, or you're walking through it right now, and there is a loneliness and a pain to that that I I can't even imagine. You add to that the promise of God, right, that you feel is on hold because you are unable to conceive. Hey, that's, that's just a snapshot of where Sarah is. And this has been wearing on her for years. Ten years have passed since God promised a son to Abraham. Imagine the smallness you would feel. God, are you paying? Do you see me? Do you know I'm still here? Abraham, do you still love me? Am I being punished? Did I do something wrong? So Sarah, she comes up with a plan. Look back at verse 1. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, earlier in Genesis, right, we didn't cover this, but Abraham and Sarah, they spend some time in Egypt. And when they leave, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gives them many gifts, including servants. That's chapter 12. I'm guessing this is where Hagar comes from. She belongs to Sarah, she is Sarah's slave. And what Sarah is proposing here, as weird as it sounds to us as modern readers, was almost universally practiced at this time. We've actually found law codes governing this practice all over Mesopotamia. But essentially, Sarah is saying to Abraham, be with my servant Hagar. Let's see if she can conceive, and then legally that child will be mine. The child will belong to Sarah. It's like an ancient form of surrogacy. And at this time, this was not considered immoral or unethical strange. Like I said, this was a common practice. Now, but we know that just because something is culturally or legally acceptable does not make it right. And I don't have time to give a full defense of this, but polygamy, okay, the practice of, of multiple wives, which is essentially what Sarah is proposing to Abraham here, is never condoned in the Bible It is true that if you read the Old Testament in particular, many men in the Old Testament have multiple wives, but what you'll notice if you pay attention is that in every case, it's an absolute disaster. There's family strife, there's jealousy, there's even violence between half-siblings. It always, always, always goes bad. So remember, just because the Bible describes something does not mean it is celebrating or condoning that thing. We have to be careful readers here. So this is Sarah's plan. And it's a really, really bad plan. This is a bad plan. There's absolutely no way this is going to go well. And you can see all the problems a million miles away. But she's so desperate. She's so scared. She goes to her husband. and She says, this is what I want you to do. So now here you have two women both in incredibly difficult positions, both invisible, but now especially Hagar, who's a servant, she's a slave, she's living with a foreign family, she's been taken from her homeland, she has absolutely no say in what happens to her in her life, and here she is being offered up as, as, as a, to Abraham as a second option, as a backup plan. And if, if she can have a child, that child will legally belong to someone else. On what planet is this a good idea? (laughs) Now, stop and ask yourself in the midst of this story what does a good husband say to that plan? What does a good husband do? Maybe say, No. Maybe say, Sarah, I know you feel unseen. I know you're scared. But we should not do this. Maybe, Sarah, have faith. God promised he would take care of this. Let's let's rely on him. Let's wait on him. Almost anything but this. And Abraham listened to the voice of his wife, Sarah. The same Abraham who had heard the promises of God, who had himself been chosen by God to represent him to the world, who had faith just a few chapters ago that was credited to him as righteousness. He says to this plan, sure, why not? What could go wrong? And you have to, what a coward. I'm not saying I would do better, but this is pathetic. This is bad. There are lots of ways you can look at the story, okay? And no one looks good. You can look at Sarah's lack of faith. True. That's real. You can look at Hagar's pride later on in the story. She will show contempt to Sarah because she's able to conceive. You could talk about that. But the character in the story that gets my blood boiling is Abraham. The women in this story do some pretty terrible things. Really, they do. And we're actually not done with that yet. But they do them because they're set up to do them. Abraham should have known better. This is his job. He received the promise. He should be leading better. But he just goes along with this. And the consequences are entirely predictable. Abraham uh, sleeps with Hagar. She gets pregnant, and Hagar's prideful about it. She flaunts it. Wow, who saw that coming? And then Sarah is enraged with jealousy. Who'd have, thunk th- who'd have thunk that? Sarah goes to Abraham, and she says in verse 5, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So Sarah's mad. And honestly, it's completely irrational. This was her plan after all. It's blowing up in her face because it did not solve her fundamental problem. Being loved and comforted while feeling unseen and lost. So she comes to Abraham again. Now she's screaming bloody murder and she curses him to his face, literally. What does Abraham do? Verse six, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Let me translate that for you. Sarah, not my problem. Helpful stuff. So, Sarah dealt harshly with Hagar. That's that's the verb. Now, what does that mean? We don't really know. Uh, However, later in the Old Testament... This is the same verb used to describe Egypt's treatment of Israel when they are slaves in Egypt. So, not good. You know, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, at a minimum. It had to be, whatever it was, it had to be so bad that a pregnant slave would run off into the desert, which is what Hagar does. She flees Sarah. It's so bad. She feels she has no choice but to run away. That's verse 6. And she heads down to a spring near Shur, which seems to be on the way to Egypt from where they're camped. So her plan appears to be to go back home. How will a pregnant runaway slave be received back home? Well, I can't imagine she feels good about it. But she, ha- she feels she- this is all she can do. And in the midst of this awful, awful story, truly, something incredible happens right here the angel of the Lord appears. That's verse 7. Now, the angel of the Lord is a really interesting figure in the Old Testament. He's not just an angel. There's always the direct article, the angel of the Lord in front of his name. And when people see him afterwards, they never say, I've seen an angel. They always say, "I've, I've seen God. He will appear later to Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Gideon, who are all warriors and leaders of Israel. So he will appear multiple times in the Old Testament, but this is the first time he ever shows up anywhere. Notice with me, to find an Egyptian slave single mom. It's the first time he shows up. And he asks her a question. Hagar, servant of Sarah, where do you come from? And where are you going? Now, there are a couple of remarkable things that happen right there. First, people who study this kind of literature, it's called ancient Near Eastern literature. It's it's the region and the time period into which this story was written. As they've studied other cultures, religious documents, religious stories, this is the only instance in all of ancient Near Eastern literature where a deity addresses a woman by name. This is it. Hagar. Hagar. Where do you come from, and where are you going? Next, notice what God does when he finds Hagar. He asks her a question. He is actually the only person in this entire narrative who's asked a question of another person. He's the only one engaging and listening and dialoguing. Now, he's God. He does not need information from Hagar. The purpose of this question is not... For God to learn something he doesn't already know, but he honors her with a question and he engages with her as a person. Hagar, tell me about your life. What's happening? Where are you? I will never get over that. Now Hagar, for her part, at first, does not seem to understand who she's talking to. This actually happens a few times with the angel of the Lord. Abraham himself will do this a few chapters later. He takes him a minute. So, Agar answers him, and she tells him she's running away from Sarah. That's where she's coming from. She doesn't answer where she's going. You almost wonder if it's because she doesn't know what to say. Well, where I come from is this awful situation. Where am I going? Nowhere. And here the angel says, basically, well, well Hagar, let me tell you, I know where you're going. You, you need to go back to Sarah. That's verse 9. Return to your mistress and submit to her, which sounds unthinkable, given what we know is happening there. But the angel says to her, verse 10, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. So God promises to protect Hagar as she returns home and to bless her. I mean, this is almost a carbon copy of the promise he gives to Abraham. He says, this is why it's okay to go back because I'm going to do what Abraham should have done. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to watch out for you. And I'm going to bless you. He says, I've heard your affliction. And I'm with you. Now, so much could be said here. But the next verse, I think, is the point of the story. It's the point of the sermon. Hagar realizes now in this moment that she's talking to no ordinary person. He he seems to know everything about her. He knows her situation. She even knows the gender of her child. There are no ultrasounds in the ancient world. So she doesn't know the gender of her baby. She gives God a name. What does the invisible woman call God? Verse 13, you are God of seeing. You are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees everyone. And now I have seen you. This whole time, as we've read the story and the pain and the suffering of all these people, Sarah included, you're asking yourself, is anybody watching? Is anyone doing anything? Does anybody care? Hagar knows. Yes. Someone was watching. The God who sees. Sarah will get her comfort too. That's later on in Genesis. But for now, Hagar, who was a nobody in her homeland and was a nobody to to Sarah and was a nobody to her husband Abraham, a pathetic runaway in the desert, she's pregnant and alone, is somebody to the God who sees. And notice what he does when he sees her. The God who sees could have brought up every sin and every mistake she's ever made in her life. He could have. He's seen it all. What does he say? He doesn't say, Hagar, I've heard your mistakes. Hagar, I've heard your sins. Hagar, I've heard your pride. No, he says, I've heard your pain. I've heard your affliction. I've heard your sorrow. And I see you in it. I see you. I see exactly where you are. God sees you. That's the point of the story. God sees you. Like that. You may not believe me, and I get it. But he sees you. When you are like Sarah, and you look around, and you see children and families, and it's painful for you. Because you've always wanted to be married, and you struggle to believe what God says is true, that... Your singleness is a calling, it's a vocation and a gift to your church family. He sees you in the tension of that. He sees you when you've always wanted kids, and for whatever reason, you just don't have them. And perhaps that tempts you to walk away. It tempts you to hate God and to curse everyone around you who has what you do not have, like Sarah did. He sees you when you're like Hagar and something horrible has happened to you. You feel abused and abandoned and dehumanized and forgotten and cast out. God sees you there. He sees you when you feel marginalized and ignored because of your gender or your ethnicity or your age or your faith. When you feel that your very presence in the room, your very presence in the conversation is making everybody else uncomfortable. God is not made uncomfortable by you. He sees you he sees you in your shame the things you are afraid to talk about the sin the doubt the feelings you have that you spend all your energy making sure no one knows are there and the isolation and makes you feel so invisible that even when people see you they don't see you they see the manicured version of you that you've created for them but he sees straight through that he sees the mistreatment you go through at school, when you feel unwanted. He sees you when you check your phone, you check that text thread or that post, and you think, no one, no one even knows I'm not there. He knows. He knows exactly where you are. Where are you overlooked? Okay, where do you feel forgotten? Where do you feel unseen? hopefully as I've been sharing, as I've been talking, it's been coming to mind. What I want you to do is take a minute and to write this down. Fill in this blank. God sees me in my... And whether it's in your Bible, it's in your Formed Life journal, it's on your phone, take a minute, think about this. I'm going to give you a minute. Think about this and write it down. Whatever you've written down, I want you to look at it. And I want you to, I want to convince you to believe it for two reasons. First, Hagar tells us to believe that. Hagar tells us there is no earthly human reason you and I should know Hagar's name. None. No other ancient writer would have would have recorded this story nobody there's a reason this story is so unique in its context we should not know hagar we should not know her story we should not know her pain or her grief but we do because she is a testimony that the god of the universe sees everyone and he wants you to know that's why this story's here including the Hagar's of the world. He sees them. But more importantly, the reason to believe is because we see in Jesus God's answer to our invisibility. We know that God looks on us despite us even when we do not want him to because Jesus is his way of grabbing the cosmos and you by the collar and saying, look at me looking at you. See me seeing you. And we know it because he came to another young woman thousands of years ago who, who we have also have no business knowing. And he promised her, just like Abraham, that she too would bear a son. And she too would become an outcast and a stigma because she would bear a child not from her husband a divine son whom God himself will name, Jesus, who is more than the God who sees, more than the God who meets you in your loneliest spaces, but the God who suffers on your behalf, the God who dies in your place, and the God who rises again to your victory, Jesus, the God who saves the God who saves. Let's pray to him now. Father, we believe you see us. You see us when we need you to. We see us, You see us when we don't want you to. You see us when we're comfortable, when we're uncomfortable. When we're at our best and at our worst, you see us. And that is good news. Because your response in that moment is to say, and I love you. And I'm with you. So Holy Spirit, I pray this week over everyone here, may we, in those spaces where we feel unseen, may we sense your presence and your promise in Jesus it's in his